When Paul King um, asked us this morning in the first service to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, I thought, good, I'm off the hook. Uh, but he started a little further down in the chapter than where I'm planning to speak this morning. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We'll start there. Hebrews 5, 11. Speaking of Jesus, the writer says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. By the way, I meant to tell you, I, for those who are using a device, I'm using the New King James. <clears throat> of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Sorry. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. A little refresher, it's it's been a while since I spoke from Hebrews. At the end of chapter 5, the author of Hebrews has something that he wants to say, wants to tell his readers and us about Jesus, as illustrated by Melchizedek. But he says it's going to be difficult to get his point across since his readers, and perhaps us as well, are dull of hearing or slothful or sluggish, as it's said later in chapter 6, same word. Dull of hearing. He talks about milk and solid food or meat. And he says that the solid food is for those who are of full age or mature. The word for mature in that verse is an adjective, teleos, which can also be translated complete or perfect. Then he goes straight into chapter 6, where he says, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. 
same root as that word for mature or complete or perfect is used here, teleotes, both taken from the root word telos. Two different forms of the same root word. So he's just told us that the only people who are really going to get what he's got to say are people who are mature, complete. And he says, therefore, let's move on to completion. Let's move on to maturity. Let's leave behind the elementary things and move on. So it's all hanging together as you go through this. So that's the review. This is the part that people get hung up on the most. A couple of reminders before we get too far. One, with so many godly believers holding so many different ideas about what this means, so many different interpretations, it's a good idea not to be too dogmatic. So don't expect me to come and pound the thing, pound the pulpit and tell you this is what it means. There are too many other believers who have good reasons why they believe differently. Be gracious and consider the possibility that our own understanding may be the one or one of the ones that is not quite correct. Also, whenever you're looking at commentaries and listening to other people speak, it is a good idea to keep in mind Proverbs 18, verse 17. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The first one to plead his cause seems to be right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And, and I have found that that is true when you're looking at commentaries and you listening to other people and you say, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. This guy knows what he's talking about. And you get to another commentary or another sermon and you hear it and you say, hmm, he didn't agree with the other guy, but he's got a good point. And he pointed out some flaws in the argument that I heard before. Um, keep those things in mind and please if your opinion winds up disagreeing with mine please have grace and (laughs) I don't know how old I was when I first cracked open the book of Hebrews and decided to read it when I and I don't remember whether the you know it was first in chapter 6 verses 4 to 8 or chapter 10 um, verses 26 to 31. But all I remember is my first reaction was just to be terrified because it didn't sound like what I knew from Sunday school of the gospel and um, salvation. So I think I pretty much just closed the book and walked away and said, okay, I, I'm going to avoid this because I... I didn't want to have anything to do with what this passage seems to say. What worried me about the passage is that it seems to say that you can lose your salvation. That, I mean, you read these things. Those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. You're saying, okay, talking to believers, all right, good. And it says, if they fall away, 
they can't be renewed again to repentance since they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. It's like, uh-oh. I didn't hear that in Sunday school. And I was afraid to ask anybody about it because I figured if I start asking questions like this, then it's going to look like I'm doubting my salvation and, you know, trouble, you know. I have since come to the conclusion that whatever God says is always important and whatever God says is always true. So it behooves me to go back and look at it again and try to understand what he is saying and why. I remember one time a a Christian brother telling me about a a totally different subject. It wasn't about this, but um, we were talking about a a disagreement in a couple of things, and he says, why on earth would anybody even want to believe that? I don't think that should ever be our question. God doesn't ask us, what do you want to believe? God just tells us the truth and expects us to believe it and act on it. Whatever he tells us is true. So if you read this and it looks like it says that somebody can lose their salvation, you better find out if that's what it means. Because if that's what it means, then you better act on Better act on that. Um, Spoiler alert, no, I'm not going there. I don't go with that, although some do. Quite a while after that initial terror when I was just closing the book and going to not read it anymore, that this book anymore, or at least skip the chapters that that, uh, scared me, um, I worked up the nerve to ask, somebody who was older and wiser and had been a believer for a lot longer than I had, you know, about this passage. And he pointed out the word if at the beginning of chapter six, uh, verse six. And his, the view that he held is sometimes called the hypothetical view because it holds that the author of Hebrews was presenting an entirely hypothetical situation. This is something that is not an actual situation. It's just something that if it happened, these would be the consequences. So, in other words, if a believer could fall away, if a genuine believer who had his salvation could fall away, there would be no chance of getting it back. No chance of returning to a state of repentance. So putting that into this context, verses 1 and 2 I'm talking about leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. So verses 1 and 2 could be describing like a church where you go in and you hear the gospel salvation message presented every week, and that's all they teach, salvation. And the next week you come back, and we're going to talk about salvation. We're going to come back the next week, and it's all about getting saved. And come back the next week, and it's salvation again. Every Sunday, just the same thing. Um, As if the congregation was only in need of hearing that one message. You you can find it. I I knew a guy one time who said that he was taught in, in a Bible school that he went to to take 
any scripture in the Bible and turn it into a salvation message. I mean, he could he could have gone probably to First um, Chronicles twenty six eighteen at Parbar westward for at the causeway and to at Parbar and turned that into a gospel message. Uh, but if if that's what we're talking about, then with the hypothetical view, that would deal with this nicely because he's talking about just going over the baby stuff over and over and over again, and then chapter, I mean, verses 4 through 6 would be talking about, would be saying, look, people, let me, let me tell you, hypothetically, if you could lose your salvation, you know, why, why are you coming back and getting the salvation message every week? Because if you could lose your salvation that you got last week, you could never get it back. So there wouldn't be any point in preaching to you anyway. So you can't lose your salvation, so get over that stuff, move on, and get on with the Christian life. So since the guy that I had talked to was somebody that I trusted and had been a believer a lot longer than I had, I could see the logic in it, and I held on to that view for many years. I certainly still respect people who have that view. I, I don't, I wouldn't put you down if you have that view. The most common argument that I've heard against that view by people who hold other views is that, well, look, if it's all hypothetical, that completely dulls the point of the whole warning that he's giving here. Well, that kind of doesn't hold water because if it's a hypothetical situation, it's not a warning anyway. And the hypothetical view is point is saying it's not a warning. It's a reassurance of your salvation. Hey, people, you're already believers. You can't lose it. So don't keep going back and just talking about that over and over again. I think a better argument against this would be that in the original Greek, there's no if in verse 6. There's a list of things here. Those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away. They're all present participles. So some people would look at it and they say, there is no if in that. So they say, this guy is talking about people that he has actually known. People who have had all of those things and have fallen away. Uh-oh. Over the years, mostly the last few years, since I, I tell you, when I first started trying to teach through the book of Hebrews, which has been a long time ago and it's gone slowly, um, I was probably still holding the hypothetical view and was thinking, all right, I don't want to see why people are having so much trouble with this. It's easily explained. And then as I got to studying the book, I realized, all right, it's not as simple as I had thought. Um, so I have studied more. I have listened to other views, and most of them have some good reason for why people hold them. And they have scriptural backing for most of them. I think that is the most important tool that we have for understanding and interpreting the Bible. What does 
other scripture say? That's the question we need to ask ourselves whenever we're trying to interpret a difficult passage is what do other scriptures say? Because God will never contradict himself. So, of the various views of this passage, the one that seems to me to be the least likely to be correct and the least likely to have scriptural backing for it is the one that scared me so much in the beginning, that it looked like maybe you could lose your salvation. According to that view, the writer is warning the readers that, hey, some people have already fallen away from the Lord, they've lost their salvation, and you could be next, unless you get with the program. You've got to straighten up. And from there, it branches off into two different groups. One group that says, all right, you lost your salvation, you need, just need to get saved again. That doesn't work. Because when you read this passage, it makes it pretty clear that if, if it's talking about losing your salvation, you can't get it back. If you read this passage saying that a Christian can lose his salvation, you should also read this passage as saying you can't retrieve it. So, can a Christian lose his salvation? What does the scripture say? John 3.36 We'll just take a, take a few minutes in case anybody here doesn't know if they could possibly lose their salvation. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Alright. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. One, it is everlasting and two, he has it. Not he might get it. He will get eternal life if he believes long enough. But he who believes has it. John five twenty four. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. It's not just something that we're looking forward to and might get because we, we believed, but it is something that we possess currently. John 10, 28. We'll start in 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man Pluck them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them, to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He's the one who holds us. You can't be plucked out of his hand, and by the way, you can't jump. Um, as somebody has said, I'm part of his hand. Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 29. Whom he foreknew... He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestinated, or whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. God knew in advance. God knew in advance. He knew you in advance. And can you imagine that? If God knew in advance 
that you were going to back out and lose your salvation, that he would have given you everlasting life to begin with? Hebrews chapter 6. That's a familiar sounding reference for some reason this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. We read it already this morning. By two immutable things in which it is impossible for for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, the high priest. Our anchor is him. He's not going to lose us. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 24, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Your salvation, if you have salvation, your salvation is as certain as his life. He is going to live forever. He will never die again And your salvation is just as secure. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus again. For by one offering, he has perfected, how long? He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So, my view is that the idea that you can lose your salvation, that you can be a Christian, you can be born again, And then lose your salvation doesn't pass the smell test as far as agreeing with other scripture. Scripture is clear that salvation is permanent. The book of Hebrews is overall a description of all the ways that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And the chief way that it is better than the old covenant is that the new covenant through Jesus Christ is permanent. The old covenant was made to pass away. And part of the reason that it was made to pass away, it was an agreement between God and men. Do this and get this. Do this and get this. The new covenant is different. If you looked at Hebrews chapter 8, as long as we're already close to that, um, verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for the second one. There wouldn't have needed to be a second one if the first one was perfect, if it had no flaws. And then he tells you in verse 8 what the flaw is. The flaw was that they couldn't keep their end of the bargain. And he's going to spend a good while after that showing that the new covenant has to do with God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Nothing about you got to do your part because he's already proven through the old covenant we can't do our part in salvation. The only thing we can do is believe what he says. He tells us he's done the work. We believe that. There are some who believe that you can lose your salvation, but not because God kicks you out. It's if you 
jump, so to speak, um, by consciously and intentionally repudiating your faith in Christ. And while I can see how you, you could arrive at that view, it's impossible for me to, to see how God could foreknow you and predestine you if he foreknew and did he for predestine you to failure? doesn't sound like God from what I see in the rest of Scripture. Several of the views of this passage place a great emphasis on whether or not the people who are being described here are believers, true believers, or not. At first glance, it does certainly appear so. Um, they were once enlightened. That's once being once and for all, one-time thing that doesn't have to be repeated. Uh, they were once enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, all of those things do describe genuine believers, at least from that time period. I mean, I don't know that many of us have seen miracles, um, which I think is, is what he's talking about there with the powers of the age to come. Um, that word for powers is frequently used to describe the miracles and signs and things like that. The question is, could these things, could any of these things, or could all of these things apply to unbelievers? Some commentators are going to argue that none of those things could ever describe any unbeliever, and others would say they could describe unbelievers, and they do describe some unbelievers. By the way, if you look at your watch and you say, I don't think he's going to make it, um, that's why I got next week too. <laughs> so the first group, the, the ones who say this cannot describe unbelievers, say that enlightenment describes the moment of regeneration. And they're going to use some some different verses from other scripture, which is how we need to get to what we what we did end up on. Second uh, Corinthians four, Second Corinthians four, verses three to six. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Um, for we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus sake for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ they say okay that's talking about when you got saved God gave you light and you got saved so they're saying this is talking about the moment of regeneration when you were born again. Enlightenment equals born again, according to their view. Ephesians 1.18. Ephesians 1.18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And again, they say, that's talking about the moment you got saved. I would point out that here, Paul is talking about in verse 16, um, 
15 and 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. This seems to be something that Paul is praying for, and I think he was writing to believers because he called them saints in chapter 1, verse 1. So I don't think that what he's talking about here with enlightened in Ephesians chapter 1 is talking about the moment of salvation. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, that's the same word as enlightened, same Greek word, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Uh, that might or might not be talking about after you were, after you became a believer, after you were born again. The second group of commentators and views, whatever you want to call it, would see that enlightenment is certainly present at the moment of regeneration, that you wouldn't get saved if you didn't get the light shown. But that does not necessarily, what is, what is the, uh, the phrase, um, correlation does not prove causation. There you go. The fact that both are present at the same time does not mean that the two things are the same thing. Um, doesn't mean that that word is exclusively used. Enlightenment is ex- exclusively used to talk about the moment of salvation. It's used in Luke 11.36 to talk about the actual light of a physical candle. Um, and it's used in various places, but that's one of them, to talk about physical light. It's um, used in uh, John 1. Verse 9, let's turn there because that's, if you were reading from the top, uh, you would come across verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And verse 9 says, that was the true light which gives light to every man that cometh into the world. And that is talking about enlightenment given to every man who comes into the world. Is every man who comes into the world born again? So using that word and saying that has to be somebody who's a believer, not necessarily the case. Um, There are also verses in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, where this same word is going to be used to talk of instruction, uh, giving instruction, like Samson's parents before he was born, when the angel told him that he was going to be born, they were like, how are we going to raise a kid like that? And they prayed and they asked that the angel of the Lord would come back and give them enlightenment on how to raise this kid. Um, it's also, interestingly to me, Nehemiah 9.12 They're looking back at the, the Exodus and going into the wilderness. And he says, Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. This light is given after they have already gotten out of Egypt. 
which would be a picture of salvation with the, the Passover and the Passover lamb, God enlightened them. It was physical enlightenment, but again, this word does not always talk about the moment of salvation. Second group, when you're talking about the next item there, they have tasted the good word of God. They look at that and say, oh, well, tasted doesn't mean you ate. You're just not interested. Uh, the first group says, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now, this word for tasted in verse 5 of chapter 6 is the same word that was used in chapter 2, verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. He said, that is not talking about he, Jesus tasted death. No, he went through the whole thing. He fully experienced it. And they say, Tasting in the Bible is talking about fully experiencing something. So this is in the same book as the other one that is mentioned. The people in the second group who think that unbelievers can fit on these things, I think legitimately point out that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, at the crucifixion of Jesus, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. So, biblically, you can make a case for, yes, it is possible that these people tasted but never actually drank of the Lord Jesus. And I am out of time. I will pick this up, Lord willing, about some of the other things here. Pray. Father, we come to you. We ask that you would give us wisdom, our understanding of your word, that you would give us grace, the views of others who see it differently. We ask that you would teach us humility and consideration for our own weaknesses and interpretation, our own weaknesses and understanding, that you would shine a light to help us to understand 